0: Checking in on commercial space, you're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is working with private industry to handle the day-to-day business of space, like delivering supplies to the International Space Station. One of those companies will soon be Sierra Space. We'll speak with Sierra Space CEO Tom Weiss about the company's plans for its Dream Chaser space plane and how private industry is giving NASA a hand when it comes to business in low Earth orbit then industries throughout the global economy are feeling the impacts of supply chain issues and the aerospace world is not immune to these challenges. But one commercial space leader argues the aerospace supply chain problem is a bit different than other sectors of the economy. We'll speak with Morpheus Space co-founder and President Istvan Lawrence about the unique challenges and possible solutions to supply chain issues in the aerospace world. The business of space, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE America's Space Station. The International Space Station will shut down by 2030. NASA announced plans to decommission the orbiting lab and hopes the private sector will help fill in the gap. One commercial space player hoping to build the next space station is Sierra Space. The company is building a space plane, Dream Chaser, that will resupply the International Space Station for now, but it has greater ambitions in low Earth orbit. To talk more about the future of low Earth orbit and Sierra Space's Dream Chaser, we're joined by Tom Weiss, the company's CEO. Tom, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So, Tom, we heard from NASA that uh, the agency plans to decommission the International Space Station uh, by the 2030s, relying on the commercial sector to step in and and fill that gap. Um, I want to first start by talking about uh, Sierra Space's plans for filling that gap with uh, a a commercial space station. What's on the horizon?
1: Yeah, you know, we're really excited. Uh, You know, we have formed a great partnership with the Blue Origin, uh, and uh, Sierra Space and the Blue Origin team, uh, very focused. We've gone through a number of inner milestones already and we're focused on Orbital Reef, which is the name of our space station. Uh, it'll be open uh, on orbit, open for business in uh, 2027. So we're really excited about it.
0: I think back to the design and the building of the International Space Station, which was this massive undertaking. Um, required international collaboration, took years to get the parts up up into space. Um, looking forward, what, what are some challenges going into building a space station? This, this is not an easy feat, I would, I would imagine.
1: No, it isn't. And, and what makes the, the commercial space station Orbital Reef uh, just, in our mind, uh, a station in which will drive uh, the commercialization of LEO is the significant reduction in cost the, com- the reduction in complexity the number of launches uh and, and and again we're very differentiated approach for maintaining and operating the station the orbital reef so uh the the big elements that make this really successful is the fact that we have a series of modules that that are a part of an architecture that just continues to use the same modules to keep growing the station in a, in a central module for us is our life habitat, uh, our large, inflatable, flexible environment uh, we call life. And uh, life is, a, is a, a, a structure that we uh, can launch inside of a traditional fairing today, whether that fairing is a 5-meter fairing, 7-meter or 9-meter, uh, and it expands in, on orbit. So in the case of our Life 1 module, the first iteration of life, uh, we can put it up on a 5-meter a, a fairing. And it literally grows into a three-story building on orbit. Uh, each life module itself uh, is one-third the entire usable volume of the International Space Station in a single launch. Uh, and so I think that is, again, the space station has done some incredible things over the years <clears throat> and just um, a marvel of technology. But, but, but we have now the technology and the engineering it's uh, it's uh, given us now the ability to build flexible structures that allows us now to significantly drop the cost of access to space. And that's what we're really excited about. Mm-hmm.
0: So so this kind of technological development is, is helping you with these hurdles. I mean, are there lessons learned from the International Space Station that you're applying to Orbital Reef?
1: Oh, absolutely. So the, again, the Sierra Space uh, uh, and Blue Origin team on our team is Boeing. And Boeing has been involved in design and operations of the International Space Station for decades. So we got, uh, you know, part of our team, Uh, we've got the ability to really think about all the things that went well and all the things that were challenging, what drove the cost of operations. You know, an astronaut's time on, on the space station, the ISS, a lot of their time is just dedicated to make sure that we keep the ISS maintained and flying. So we get to take advantage of all those lessons learned, different ways of doing things, and every one of those lessons learned are being applied to Orbital Reef. And I think that's a huge advantage that we have as a team. Mm-hmm. And and you said 2027 was the date I,
0: I heard you mention. Is that for for the first piece to be in orbit or, or for the first astronauts to step on board? But when when might that actually happen?
1: Yeah, so we're right now, we're, we're uh, uh, on orbit in 27. We like to say we're not just on orbit, we're open for business. Uh, and so we can see, uh, you know, again, uh, astronauts going up to the, uh, orbital reef, uh, as early as that year. Uh, we also see then, um, uh, uh, the fact that you had mentioned earlier that the ISS, uh, now is planned to be commis- decommissioned in 2030. Of course, that's uh, assuming that the Russians, uh, certified their modules past 2024. Um, but that gives us time to be up on orbit. We're open, uh, and then we get a smooth transition uh, from the ISS over to Orbital Reef. So we're going to be sending cargo and crew, uh, up to Orbital Reef in, uh, again, in 2027. Uh, and that matches up with our Dream Chaser. Dream Chaser is the innovative transportation system that then serves the Orbital Reef space station. So right now, uh, our first cargo variant of Dream Chaser, uh, will launch uh, early next year to the ISS. Um, and of course that cargo variant will also be servicing our space station. Uh, we've, uh, just, uh, uh, went through our, um, a major milestone on our crude variant of dream chaser. Uh, and, uh, we'll fly that for the first time in 2025, uh, and it'll be uh, human rated flying people to space to support the orbital reef in 2027.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about dream chaser in a moment, but I, I want to go back to orbital reef is. Is the is the Dream Chaser going to be the only vehicle that can that can dock with with the station, or or will other space vehicles be able to supply cargo and crew to um, to Orbital Reef?
1: Yeah, no, we we've uh, architected Orbital Reef to have uh, stand, standard standard uh, berthing ports and docking stations, so that um, uh, you know other cargo and other crew vehicles can come up and dock with orbital roof. That was important to us to make sure that we had the ability for international customers or other other companies that have uh, cargo and crew to come up to the to our station. And so that's built into the architecture and the design. Um, Having said that, we believe that the unique advantages associated with a Dream Chaser space plane that uh, can fly a significant amount of cargo and crew and come back and land on a runway, uh, literally anywhere in the world, a seven thirty-seven at a nice low G um, is is a unique advantage that space planes have, and the Dream Chaser specifically has. Uh, but again, we've designed Orbital Reef with standard uh, docking and berthing ports.
0: Mm-hmm. Let Let us talk about Dream Chaser now. Um, I've I've been covering uh, space for quite a few years here in in, in Florida, and have gotten to see see the development of, of this vehicle over those years. Um, you said it's getting ready to fly cargo soon, getting ready to fly crew soon. Give us a status on this. Um, you know, what, what work is left to do if there's, there's any?
1: Yeah, so right now on our first, uh, 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 we call our, our cargo variant of Dream Chaser. You might have heard it called uh, DC-100. Um, it is in our factory here in Louisville, uh, finalizing its uh, integration and test. Uh, the next phase for that vehicle is, uh, to get to Neil Armstrong test facility and go into, uh, TVAC testing, uh, and another testing at, uh, NASA. Uh, and then, uh, the vehicle then is shipped from Neil Armstrong to Kennedy Space Center and then prepared, uh, to integrate onto the Vulcan rocket. Uh, and again, uh, we anticipate that it'll be up to the ISS, uh, early next year. So we're, uh, we're with well within a year, uh, less much less than a year, of uh, having uh, Dream Chaser have its first cargo resupply mission to the International Space Station.
0: Mm-hmm. It really is a cool looking spacecraft, um, for sure. But there there is a reason why it is in that space plane design. Can you just remind us as to some of the advantages of of, of having a, a vehicle that can launch on a rocket but can land on on these? aircraft runways upon return
1: yeah i mean you know the dream chaser looks the way it does it it's both a spacecraft and an airplane um and it's a it's a very high speed airplane as it re-enters the earth's atmosphere you know it's flying at hypersonic speeds supersonic subsonic and so it has all of the capability of advanced aerodynamics and drag reduction uh, but its unique aspects is that it can bring things back to earth in a very low g reentry. And and again, land at any runway in anywhere in the world a 737 can land. So for us, imagine that we return and we land at Kennedy Space Center, uh, and you know, delicate scientific uh, research uh, uh, is is able to quickly get out of the of our space plane back into NASA again without having to be plunged into the ocean or you know, capsule that lands somewhere in the middle of a desert. Uh, so quick access reentry. The other aspect of uh, Dream Chaser is the fact that it's highly reusable, a minimum of 15 times, and uses a, a fuel that's uh, non-hypergolic. Uh, again, so all the hazardous uh, 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 issues associated with other, like the space shuttle, for example, we use a different fuel type, an oxidizer t- type, hydrogen peroxide, and RP-1 in this case. And again, that's, uh, again, allows us to land And easy access to cargo that's on the space plane or obviously people that's on the on on the on the space plane. And then back uh, uh, again, uh, refurbish the aircraft, uh, get it back up into flight and turn it very quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. That those first crew missions, do you have a crew picked out who will be going? And selfish follow up
1: question. (laughs) Are you taking volunteers? (laughs) Uh, Great question. Uh, We were uh, obviously in discussions with lots of people who want to fly. Uh, be the first flight up. Uh, we haven't uh, selected, announced uh, that, uh, but we do have our own uh, human space flight office. Uh, we have obviously a, a medical office, uh, uh, astronaut training corps. It's led up by uh, uh, our president, Janika uh, Vondi. Uh, as you know, is a former astronaut. Uh, she also ran uh, a Glenn Research Center uh, and she's, uh, both our president and leading up our human space flight office. So we're, we're excited. We've had a number of, uh, folks, uh, that, uh, are very interested in being the first crew up, uh, to your question about volunteers. Uh, again, we'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, <laughs> I I'll say that, uh. Uh, I'm very excited to be part of that first crew. Excellent, excellent. That's a course of course if Janet, you know, passes me through the Human Spaceflight Office. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you you got to get through the training. 1st I got to get through Janet first. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: let, let Let's talk finally, Tom, um, about an issue that, that I've 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 talked with a few um, other aerospace companies, and and that's that's recruiting a STEM workforce. Um, it, it seems to be a challenge these days to get. Um, people that have the skills and knowledge to, to work in, in this industry, um, are, are you finding similar challenges at, at Sierra space and, and what's kind of your path forward to get this pipeline filled with, with candidates, um, that can come and work on these spacecraft and, and possibly go to space and, and build these, these systems in low earth orbit.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I mean, we're, we're all seeing that, uh, Uh, There's a very tight labor market, especially as you look at advanced engineering skill sets, it even gets tighter. Um, I think the key for us is that one is we really are proud of having a vision that's very differentiated. Uh, One in which is that we believe is going to create a very differentiated outcome in the way that we think about uh, human colonization and and obviously uh, commercialization of space. So I think it begins with a company that people can really think about doing something that's very differentiated. It's not just building another launcher. It's not just building another widget. It's doing something that is very disruptive and and will change the course of how we think about humans uh, going to and from space. I think you you first got to have something that's compelling. Um, We have a great team of recruiters. Uh, We're involved in a lot of of obviously different parts of the market. Uh, And right now, I think we've been uh, successful in attracting the kind of talent you can imagine that we need extremely creative, courageous, collaborative, uh, brilliant people that uh, really want to work together. And, uh, you know, right now we're hiring about uh, 30 to 35 people a week. Mm-hmm. Tom Vice is the
0: CEO of Sierra Space. Tom, hopefully the next time I see you, we're both strapped into uh, a Dream Chaser uh- <laughs> You (laughs) bet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Sounds great. Thanks
0: so much for chatting with us, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Still to come, supply chain issues in aerospace are a unique problem. One space leader's idea to fix it. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Industries throughout the global economy are feeling impacts of supply chain issues, and the aerospace world is not immune to these challenges. But one commercial space leader argues the aerospace supply chain problem is a bit different than other sectors of the economy. We're joined by Morpheus Space co-founder and president, von Lortz, to talk about the unique challenges and possible solutions to supply chain issues in the aerospace industry. He begins our conversation by explaining that aerospace industry wasn't impacted as much by the pandemic as other industries. Instead, it was the fact that analysts underestimated just how much business the private space sector was capable of and manufacturers of components for satellites weren't ready for the big business of rockets.
2: Everybody was basically blindsided by the rockets and nobody was trying not nobody but you know the majority of of the industry was was not trying to adapt scalable means because they didn't see the demand there it was all in projections and they you know nobody acted upon projections we acted upon projections we acted upon upon our own projections that we sensed that there's going to be a big industry in, in a in a decade or so
0: and and so there's there's not scalability with with these components but when I think of the aerospace industry, I, I think of an industry that is um, very enterprising and, and uh, you know, that, that is able to you know, surmount these technical hurdles that are in front of them. Is, is that the case? Is that, what, is that what's happening in your industry right now is that you're, you're seeing this challenge and then you're meeting it with some sort of solution? Or is this really going to hamstring the industry for a while?
2: Oh, yeah, um, and that's, that's actually what, what I took upon myself to just go out and, and just whistleblow everywhere I can so that people listen and look at the data. And most importantly, maybe some analysts will listen to this and they will go out and try to gather some way, in an anonymized way, to gather the actual capacity, how many satellites uh, could be built per year. And project that out. Um, project out, you know. Find the bottlenecks. Which which satellite components are actually causing trouble? Like we know the propulsion systems are in extremely high demand. Um, lead times are now uh, slipping into one and a half to two years uh, for for a propulsion system in the industry. And this cannot happen. This this cannot be because um, we are we are getting requests uh, from from big companies that say, well, we we need. A lot of propulsion systems within like three months. Otherwise, we're going to fail the mission. And uh, these things are all impacting the industry. Like if if uh, five missions uh, fall out of a of a launch, that that has an impact. And we need to realize that it's not a huge industry. Like it's not uh, um, you know fifty thousand companies acting here. It's 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 more more uh, r- smaller and 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 intimate so to say i mean you see the same faces over and over again at the same conferences it's it's not you know that that big that you you can lose your sense of uh, interconnectedness
0: mm-hmm. you, you mentioned propulsion is is something that these satellite manufacturers are looking for uh, morpheus space that your company specializes in satellite propulsion systems i mean how, how are you one meeting the demand of these satellite manufacturers for the parts that they need, and how how are you able to get the parts that you need to make your parts to make their parts? <laughs> you know how how is that? You know how is this working?
2: So we don't have uh, problems of, of of getting parts, and nobody um, nobody has serious issues of getting parts. There are there are some some shortages uh, here and there, but I, I never heard that the problem is that I cannot build enough things because i don't have enough chips or or resistors or whatever what, what i'm hearing what the i'm seeing is that the processes to put these basic components together into a propulsion system or into an uh, attitude control system is not scalable is is meant to be manual and and you know absolutely inefficient it's it's meant for a low volume production and every everywhere uh, across the board, you see this. There are certain exceptions, obviously. Like I, I consider Morpheus an exfe- exception, and there 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 are um, other uh, um, companies like Blue Canyon Technology, for example. They 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 produce uh, a high volume of um, uh, reaction wheels. Everybody knows that in the industry. Um, however, uh, we also know that that's still not enough. Um, and the industry right now, the industry, the, the legacy industry players are now seeing this same shortage. And what they are expecting is that they are slapping money into the problem or onto the problem. And, and uh, they are expecting results, but that's not how it works. You have to adapt your product to make sure that you can produce it in high volume. We, we went through the whole thing and we prepared uh, everything so that we can achieve uh, a production rate of, of uh, tens uh, of thousands of, of units per year if, if needed. You know, we, we can take money and slap, slap it onto our business and make it bigger, but others can't.
0: What, what are some of the challenges then? Um, you know, if money's not going to solve the problem, how, how do you solve this problem? How, how did Morpheus Space meet this demand and solve this problem?
2: You need, uh, so the, everybody needs to accept, first of all, the reality of the projections. Even if they they project, even if you say that those are wishy-washy and, and it's not guaranteed, what's guaranteed is, is the increase. So what you need to focus on is that, well, this year I sold, let's say 10 or whatever thing I, I'm building, I sold 10. Well, next year, maybe I'm gonna have to sell 20, right? And the year after that, maybe it's, you know, and then, it's, it's just adapt an exponential growth curve and project it out like four or five years into the future and realize that you are not able to meet that demand. If you're not able to grow with the industry, you're going to die out, right? You're going to get fizzled out into non-existence. Like building up factories uh, and, and, and having goals of, of producing 100 uh, units uh, per year is ridiculously low. The companies need to have a higher, um, a bigger ambition, higher ambition. And, and you get that through financiers. So the only way you can actually uh, execute on big ambition is if, if the financiers also understand that there is a problem and there is a, a big demand that needs to be met. And it will, it, all of this will be very, very obvious in like one or two years. It's going to be obvious, like with the rockets. Everybody knows that that was like five years ago. That was the biggest problem for, for the growth of the industry. In two years, everybody gonna, everybody's gonna see that it's, it's subcomponent that's uh, subcomponents that's gonna be a problem. But by then, it's gonna be too late.
0: We're sitting here talking about how one of the challenges of this industry is its exponential growth. <laughs> that doesn't seem like it should be a challenge. That um, you want to be in an industry that has exponential growth, right? But absolutely. But are, I mean, absolutely. Are you optimistic? That's not the
2: problem. The problem is that the people are not recognizing They're and not recognizing. believing their own conditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the problem. Are, I mean, are you optimistic that you say that in the next year or two, it's it's going to become very clear? Are, are you optimistic that that those subcomponents will be there to meet this demand, or are these issues that you're raising the alarm bells on not being taken seriously? That and this is seriously going to hamstring the exponential growth that you're describing that that the aerospace industry has on on the horizon.
2: Um. The. The main cause for this is the secrecy in the industry. So everybody likes to act uh, behind the veils of of uh, NDAs and and uh, classified uh, missions and stuff like that. That was all uh, nice and good. For the legacy industry that that had to protect their lobbying efforts right and everything had to be secret and then the more secret it was the better your result results were in an open capitalistic uh, um, uh, market it's that's not the case you want to have competition you want to you, you want to have the information readily available to everyone in the industry uh of what's the demand and, and what's the supply and, and where, where are the challenges, where are the, the, uh, the holes in, 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 the, in the chains. Right? Everybody needs to know that because everybody is connected. At the end of the day, we all have a runway. The industry has a runway. right? The new space industry has a runway because it has been pumped uh, uh, with, with venture capital uh, the past few years. So what we need to make sure is that we utilize that uh, influx of of capital and make it profitable as soon as possible. That's the reason for exponential growth. That's why VCs are pushing for exponential growth, so that you don't waste time growing slowly, bootstrapping and growing linearly slowly up. No, grow fast up and then make money. Once once you reach critical mass, you can can, uh, do real business, right? And that's that's what we're seeing. That's the same thing as, as what if you look at a, a startup or the entire industry right now, it's, a, it's you know statistically speaking, the behavior patterns are similar. I'm going to end on
0: this question. It's fun. I, you mentioned that one solution to this and, and probably the, the best way to solve this is by these companies being more transparent about projections um, and, and getting away from that legacy model. With new space, I mean, are you optimistic that will change?
2: I, I truly believe that that's going to happen because uh, people like, uh, like me are going to force this. I'm, I'm seeing the, the problem. And, and if, if we would be just a little bit more open, we wouldn't have this problem. If all satellite component providers could, for example, uh, provide a number in an un- anonymized way of what's their capacity, and and some entity, some government entity would would collect that, you know, and they could they could just let everyone know. Well, you know, the industry can produce right now a thousand propulsion systems. There you go, you know, just check it out.
0: That was Morpheus Space co-founder and president von Lawrence. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.